G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. While we always hope that romances finish or begin with the start of a marriage that will be a lifelong pursuit, Mm. uh, all the challenges and all the, uh, the upsets that that brings, but at the end of the day you hope in a long, lifelong marriage... Uh, that people might say that's all worth it. We got there. We raised a family. We we built some uh, some level of wealth to pass on to new generations, and uh, we get to the end of our lives and say, wasn't that a wonderful adventure? Mm. But we also realise that sometimes things go pear shaped. And as Christian believers, while we expect that as we rely on biblical principles for the strength in our marriage, the strength in our families. That not always those principles do they get applied and sometimes things go wrong and you have to know how to deal with those things and you're dealing with this sort of thing all the time. But just to encourage us with the idea that, well, we hope that things always will go right as Christian believers, but things do sometimes go wrong. That's right. And and they can go wrong um, over a period of time. They can go wrong very quickly. I remember many years ago I read the book by... Uh, Gary Chapman, the author of The Five Love Languages. And he talks in that book about when people first meet, there's a, a period of infatuation. Everything is perfect and you can never see a fault in the other person. That could last anywhere between about um, 18 months and two and a half odd years. And after that period of time, maybe the, the rose-coloured glasses start to fade and become more crystal clear or something like that. And and so people start seeing a little more, more of the imperfections in one another. And that that uh, is a, a shifting dynamic in people's relationships that's got to be worked through. And, of course, if people don't have you know, a good framework for their relationship, if it's not a genuinely, okay, we're, going to, we're committing to this for the rest of our lives, then little cracks start to appear. And instead of working on those cracks, they might just paper over them or they don't deal with them. And then they can contribute over the years to causing a lot of friction. And, unfortunately, that can result in what we're talking about today, which is domestic violence. It, it, it tends to be... Um, well, not tends to be, but it can be an end result of many years of things building up. Of course, some people, their nature is that they're very poor at resolving conflict. Sometimes I imagine it goes right back to upbringing in perhaps dysfunctional homes. Absolutely. Uh, where you carry an awful lot of baggage into a marriage and you've got to learn a lot of a lot of new things. And some, sometimes people are not quick to learn those lessons that make a marriage work properly. That's right. And and. One of, the, one of the challenges that, uh, that family lawyers and the courts deal with is people who, from maybe from their youth, have grown up thinking this is normal behaviour, that the way that you might treat your spouse, this is normal behaviour, when it's not, it's completely inappropriate behaviour. But there's a lack of insight there because they've really never been told differently. Now, people sometimes uh, will argue about what the Bible teaches about uh, marriage, about a man and a woman, and the way they treat one another. And mm. people talk about different 
uh, orders in relationship, you know, head of the wife, uh, submit to the husband. Uh, I'm always encouraged uh, that the deeper you look into a biblical understanding of the way a man and a woman relate together in marriage is that the two submit to one another. That's right. This idea that we'd read about in the Bible where a man is to love his wife uh, in the same way that Christ loved the church and was prepared to lay down his life for the church. That's always been there, oftentimes glossed over. Uh, but this idea of when we talk about domestic violence, family violence, uh, oftentimes the male is the perpetrator. But as a Christian believer, we appreciate that God has already put some things in place that say to a man, this is where you've got to adjust your focus, adjust your life. But uh, tell me about men, because men are typically the perpetrators of domestic violence. And uh, I'm sure that's not always the case, but but men need to take special note. Absolutely. And um, look, I, I would think in terms of the total damage done, more more damage is done by men, because men tend to react in more violent physical ways. Um, that's true in lots of areas of life. But um, th- there's a real place for self-evaluation and in, you know lack of insight and maybe um, addressing that because it's very easy to react and uh, overreact. I remember as a little boy, one of the first proverbs my mother ever taught me was Proverbs 16.32, which is better to control your temper than a city. So it's one of those things that was ingrained in me. I've got a temper. I think <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a thing that I'm proud of, but it's there. I know I, it's one of those things that I have assessed. Yes, it's there. And I think scripture is very helpful in, in looking at a proverb like that, saying, well, where are the priorities? It is better to be in control of your own spirit and be uh, not being controlled by it than being in charge of something that might appear to be very important. I haven't done any research on this, but every now and then I reflect on the word that we perhaps used to use a lot more than we do today uh, when we're talking about men, and that is gentlemen. Mm. Uh, and gentleness is not always a part of the male personality. It is often something that needs to be learned. Uh, sometimes it's a value or a set of values that are caught and uh, usually from our fathers. Mm-hmm. But but uh, this sort of gentleness that needs to come forth in men, it's something that's not always there and leads us to some of the issues we'll talk about today. Absolutely. And um, and you, I see it uh, regularly in, in the lives of the clients that come into my office and uh, and even just sitting in the back of a courtroom waiting to get on with them. With a matter, you can often hear the, the matters that are in front of you and the, the difficulties that people are experiencing and um, the lack of insight that's shown and um, just the snowballing effect that it has on their relationships with one another and their relationships with their children, and sometimes it is generational. Steve, when we're talking about domestic violence, uh, we hope that people can get those things, those issues resolved. Mm. Uh, They can learn an orderliness within their relationship. But when domestic violence continues and there is no resolution, what is the likelihood that eventually it's going to end up in court? Um, It's a fairly high likelihood that there'll have to be some form of intervention. So what I say by that is when when relationships break down, not everybody whose relationship breaks down experiences domestic violence, but everybody who experiences domestic violence um, ends up in a situation where there's often a very big power imbalance. And whereas issues relating to the care of children or issues relating to the division of property, there's a lot of mechanisms that are out there that can be used to resolve that without having to have a court impose an order over the top of people or say, 
you can no longer do this particular thing, or this is how the time that uh, that you spend with each of your children will be determined. That that can often be done by agreement. It's very hard to have a situation where someone is protected simply by agreement, because one person, sometimes both, it, it can often be um, from both parties, but one person is just unable to behave in a way which um, doesn't put the other person at risk. Typically, protection orders or domestic violence orders are made for a limited period of time. So they might be for two years, or and, and, and that often helps people just get through that initial phase of the separation, highly emotive, lots of um, options that are up in the air. It's a very different stage of life, and, and people react very differently under pressure and under stress. So sometimes they're just in place for a defined period of time. But if an order is made um, by a court, there's not a whole lot of flexibility. You can reach agreements, but they don't. Those agreements aren't enforceable by court. And so, if someone continues to engage in that pattern of behaviour, then there's no real recourse other than a court order. Mm. Well, we want to talk a little about courts today and invite listeners to contribute to our conversation. Now, you might have your own story to tell. Uh, you might need to be a little guarded if you were sharing details about your story if you're calling in today, today to be a part of our conversation. But our talkback line open on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. You might have a question. Uh, you might have a comment. You might have your own story as we talk about family violence, domestic violence and the courts today. And people listening to our conversation all over Australia today, Steve. Uh, so people who are in Queensland may have a different uh, a set of uh, uh, ways that the court might respond to to others in other states like Western Australia or uh, South Australia, Victoria, uh, uh, Tasmania. Uh, what is the difference in the way that some states actually define sure. domestic violence? So each state does have its own um, jurisdiction in relation to uh, what we would we'll use the word domestic violence as a generic topic or as a generic descriptor for it, because what we're really talking about is the violence that exists between people in a relationship. So that's typically people in a romantic relationship, but it's not restricted to that. So it can be between parents and children, it can be between siblings. Um, but what we're really talking is about people within a domestic relationship where they're experiencing some form of violence. Now, uh, I practice in Queensland. That's where um, most of the family violence orders that I deal with are Queensland-based orders, although sometimes there's people who live over the border in New South Wales. They have different names in different states, slightly different definitions in different states, and slightly different ways in which they are applied by the courts in different states. So I'll try and speak in the most generic terms today so that it's as applicable as possible for our listeners. But um, I might have to give some Queensland examples just so that we can put some flesh on the bones. But um, there's also specific definitions of family violence within the Family Law Act. So there's two issues that people often see as interconnected, but they're dealt with slightly differently by the courts. So when people are in a violent relationship or not even violent in a physical sense, but where there's emotional abuse or economic abuse, that might fall within the definition of domestic violence within a state-based piece of legislation and dealt with in a state court. And then there's also family violence specifically defined in the Family Law Act which is then used by the family courts if they're making decisions about children. Particularly, that's where it's used. So the family violence definition in the Family Law Act, which is a federal piece of legislation, that covers everyone. 
Well, inviting listeners to join in the conversation, 1-800-316-316. Does it necessarily mean, Steve, that if you have experienced family violence or domestic violence, could be intimate partner violence, if you've experienced that, uh, that, that you are necessarily moving towards divorce? Uh, or is the whole issue of family violence, domestic violence, if it comes to uh, lawyers arguing each side, is this really a signal that this is the the end is in sight, or or is there do these interventions often work and uh, people resolve their issues? Uh, you would oftentimes talk about mediation before you actually get to the courts. Mm. How does all that work with a process, and uh, can you save a marriage by actually getting into this sort of intervention? Yes, you can do, and sometimes um, protection orders or domestic violence orders actually act as a way of restoring some of that power imbalance. So the existence of an order sometimes allows people to continue to remain living in the home but prohibits them from engaging in particular behaviours and there's a a bit of a a threat hanging over their shoulder that if they engage in that behaviour again, they'll be in breach of the order and there's very serious consequences for breaching that order. So um, some people who are placed in that situation might say, well, I don't really want to be under the same roof and at the risk of having that breach alleged against me, so I'm not going to stay in the home. Others say, all right, well, this is here, let's work with it. Let's work on our relationship. And the other person who is being protected might feel a little more confident about raising the issues that they've been uncomfortable raising in the past because they've got that added protection of the order. But it would depend on the nature of the behaviour that led to the order. It's tricky, isn't it? Uh, And it's difficult to know what will happen for anyone who might be making an assessment of a particular case. If I'm reflecting back to our conversation last week, uh, that when I was uh, talking about uh, domestic violence uh, with uh, people uh, last week, and uh, especially uh, those from Collective Shout, and the statistics that, that one woman every week is dying in the, the, the circumstances where there is domestic violence. Uh, yeah, so if we're talking... Abs- it's an absolute scourge on our society. Yep, yeah. and, and, and I imagine that while there might be those who are dying, there are many others who are being very severely injured Absolutely. in uh, domestic violence circumstances. Uh, so when we talk about uh, ways that you might be able to rescue uh, a relationship, uh, oftentimes I imagine the advice is just get out Absolutely. if you're in trouble. How, yeah. how do you... When someone calls you and says... I'm in the middle of a domestic violence situation. I imagine you have to assess just how serious that might be. That's right. So um, what I typically say to clients is if it's an emergency, you need to contact the police immediately because there's very little that I can do in my office while you're at home if you're at risk. Um, And I'm usually only available during business hours. And it typically is the case that most people end up getting into their arguments in their personal time, which typically is at night or in the morning when those services, services of lawyers are not typically available, but the police are. So if you're at imminent risk or there is something very volatile going on, the best course of action is to contact your local police because they can come help assess the situation and um, remove that person if it, is, if it is a very violent situation or if they can observe that people have been injured. That's typically what would happen. But the difficulty um, is really at the other end of the spectrum where there's this gradual build-up of behaviour. It might not, net, might not yet have manifested in violent behaviour, but there might be... Uh, a lot of indicia is that something is not right here. There's a, uh, someone's being consistently taken advantage of or belittled or berated or harassed or they're being coerced to behave in a particular way. And I think the the best help um, that I can give them in those situations is to say, well, these 
other ways in which the family court or the local court might deal with that behaviour, but also to have a give the person the ability to go and see a counsellor to gain some external perspective on what is that behaviour. Lots of people who have been in a relationship where they have been coerced or controlled start to see it as normal. And we, as an external person, might say, that's completely ridiculous. It's, it's abhorrent that, that you're being treated that way. There needs to be some kind of intervention. But it be, you become acclimatised to it. Sometimes people might be highly sensitive to an issue which might not fall within the definition of domestic violence. But having someone like a, a counsellor or a pastor or even coming and seeing a family lawyer can give them an external perspective to say, yes, that is completely inappropriate behaviour or... Uh, that wouldn't necessarily be seen as domestic violence, but it is an unhealthy trait in the relationship. And maybe with a counsellor, you could work through some ways of improving the communication or uh, uh, having some more assertiveness, some assertive boundaries in the relationship so that it can be more a more healthy and functioning relationship. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. You can be part of our conversation, 1-800-316-316, and uh, it may be uh, advantageous to you today. If you wanted to remain anonymous, that is fine. Uh, We're talking with Steve Potts, an accredited family law specialist. We're talking about domestic violence, family violence. And, uh, Steve, let's take a call. Let's hear from Mary-Anne in New South Wales. Hello, Mary-Anne. Welcome along. Oh, hi. How are you? Very well, Mary-Anne. What's your question or your comment? I've got a question for Steve. Look, at, we're currently going through family court at the moment. Um, I have care of my grandson um, and have done so since he was about three days old. Mm-hmm. The question I have in making my my response and everything to the application of his mum, I had to put interim orders and final orders. Now, I think we have lost you, Marianne. Uh, Marianne, you might like to call us back. Uh, we'll keep a place for you in the queue here. Uh, call us back on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Something's happened. Uh, you've dropped out. Uh, we'll uh, we'll pick up uh, uh, another opportunity. Uh, as hopefully, Marianne will call back in just a few moments. Mm. A common a common issue though when uh, grandparents are involved in these sorts of issues too. Absolutely, so, and and what often happens, and I. I have to admit that I do love acting for grandparents because they tend to be slightly removed from the dispute and a little more perhaps altruistic in their involvement in a family law dispute. It's very tough for grandparents because they see their children often, whom they love, um, and then they see their grandchildren who are particularly vulnerable and they've got to try and balance their love for their children with the need to protect their grandchildren. So it's, it's an extremely tough situation for them. Uh, we've got Marianne back. Hello, Marianne. Sorry, we got uh, cut off there somehow. Are you there, Marianne? Uh, we've lost Marianne again. We did have her back. It's a difficulty getting a, a hold of that one. But yes, uh, uh, grandparents in, in a family law dispute. Sorry to interrupt you there, Steve. Yes, so it's often the case that they end up intervening in uh, parenting disputes because either one or both of the parents are unable to uh, care for children. Um, Typically, they're very sad situations. Maybe a parent's passed away or they might have an addiction or they might be incarcerated in jail or there there might be some other reason why grandparents needed to step in to be able to provide some care for children. And that's a very tough situation because it's a different stage of life. They're all of a sudden having to look after very active young children again. Sometimes it's a very joyful time of life as well, but it's it's very difficult. But... um, They've got to balance that 
tension between how much support do they provide to their children and how much support do they provide to their grandchildren. Well, we have lost Marianne, and uh, Marianne, you're welcome to call us back on 1-800-316-316. We'll do our best to uh, get you on uh, as soon as possible. We are talking about domestic violence, family violence. Uh, We're talking about how the courts see those areas. Sometimes, Steve, uh, we think of the court as being uh, not a friend, Uh, but there is a certain sense in which uh, if you are on the receiving end, if you are the victim in these areas, uh, the court the court certainly is your friend. Absolutely. And there's been a real concerted effort over the last several years for courts to adjust their frameworks and their methods of dealing with people to provide added protection to people who have been uh, victims of family violence or domestic violence. So both the law itself has ways in which family violence is taken into account in the assessment of risks to children and the amount of time that they should spend with their parents. But there's also a degree to which the actual court process of appearing in court, giving evidence, where you might sit while you're waiting to get on, has been revisited by the court and a lot more attention has been given to how do we ensure those people are protected. So to give you a couple of simple examples, um, someone who is a victim of domestic violence who makes an application to their local court, the magistrate's court or their state court who deals with those kinds of issues, um, will often have a separate room that they can wait in before they come into court. Sometimes they're even brought in through a separate door into the courtroom so that they're not having to sit out in the public gallery with someone who has been very abusive toward them. So there's that extra level of care that's put around them. Typically, um, domestic violence proceedings are in closed courts. So what that means is nobody can sit in the back of them and hear what's going on. The names of the people are suppressed. So in Queensland, where I practice, um, if there is a published decision from a court, it's given a pseudonym or the people's names are just identified by initials. They're not actually given a name. So a lot of that is just to try and protect people, provide that added layer of protection. And so um, those court procedures are actually developed to make it a bit easier for people. Uh, we have Mary Ann back on the line. Uh, oh, hi. Hi, Mary Ann. Sorry, uh, we lost you there a couple of times. Let's hope, let's uh, get your question out quickly in case we lose you again. Okay. Um, basically, we're in the court. I've had to make interim orders and final orders, mm-hmm. and, and so has she. So basically, when we go from the local court to the federal court, um, with the interim and the, the final orders, once the, the judge sort of looks at that and, and, and says whatever, is there any way you could go back and fight, fight them? Or, or, or The reason why I'm, I'm asking that question is because I've had... Um, my grandson since he was three days old. Now, he is 19 months old. Mm-hmm. His mother's had very little contact with him at all mm-hmm. through her choice, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm concerned because she's violent towards others. She's violent and aggressive towards him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is is the psychological effect that it would have on him being away from us for such a long time. Sure. So... There's a whole stack of issues that are interconnected there. So you talked about interim and final arrangements. Let me provide a little bit of framework for both you and the listeners. Um, Courts often have to make decisions on very limited evidence when people first turn up to court. So that's why they talk about making an interim order. And courts are really uh, quite at a disadvantage then because they've typically only got the affidavits or a little bit of evidence from the people who have made the application to court. They've got no real way of testing that. So what they would typically do is make an order 
that put something in place for the time being and then set in place uh, some procedures for obtaining more evidence. Now, that might be the report from a social worker. That might be giving people the time to subpoena records. So, for okay, example... Well, if subpoena records now before we even go to court. Yep. Um, so it'll only be a local court. And I've actually subpoenaed records already. Yes, yeah, so, so perhaps I've from... I've done all that information... Yep, so all of that will be part of the evidence that a judge has to weigh when the judge is yep. first presented with it. Um, local courts are a little bit harder to pick, um, and it will depend a little on the judge. Uh, part of the joy of yep. a family lawyer is you, you tend to appear in front of the same judges, so you tend to have a, a good idea of which way they might lean on a particular issue. Yep. Yep. But more often than not, judges will approach the care, particularly of young children, quite cautiously. But then um, to kind of cut to the answer to your ultimate question is, is there a way of revisiting it? Well, all of the evidence will ultimately be tested if it proceeds to a trial. If a judge has made an error, there's appeal mechanisms. But usually, um, once orders are made, they stay in place because the whole idea okay. is to provide certainty for everyone. Mary Ann from New South Wales, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And we did persevere a little there, and I think that hopefully has paid off. And uh, there is an appeal mechanism uh, if things don't go the way you hoped, uh, you can take things to a new level. Yeah, as long as there's an error of law. As we just uh, warm things along a little bit here, if we're getting some insights into the courts and how the courts deal with domestic violence, with family violence, I can imagine that when uh, a dispute like this comes before the courts, uh, oftentimes it's filled with all sorts of deceit, uh, lies, manipulation. Tell me your your thoughts on the magistrates or the judge who is on the bench. How shrewd are these guys to be able to see through the facades that are presented oftentimes in these sorts of disputes? My experience is that they are very good at it because they unfortunately deal with it every day. The reality for most people who separate who can reach an agreement is that they don't actually end up in front of a judge. So everybody who is cooperative and able to work through their agreements gets them done gets through the system and gets out without actually having to sit in front of a judge. That, unfortunately, for judges means that they're left with all of the intractable disputes, the really messy situations that need to be worked through. And so every day they tend to deal with these issues. Um, judges themselves don't ask many questions, usually, of people um, simply because of the nature of our legal system is an adversarial system. So it relies on um, two parties contending for their positions and the judge weighing it up rather than an inquisitorial system where the judge asks a lot of questions. So a judge will ask questions of witnesses, but tends to rely on the solicitors or the barristers cross-examining the witness who sits in the witness box. And what typically happens there is the person who's in the witness box is asked questions about their behaviour or about circumstances during the relationship. And from the way that they give their answers, it's often... Um, easy really to draw the conclusions about whether or not they even perceive what they've done as an issue. So that's one of the big challenges for, um, say, a, f a family court judge is making a decision about, okay, if there has been family violence during this relationship, to what extent might that have been witnessed by a child? What effect might that have had on a child? Does that mean that it's dangerous for this child to continue to spend some time with a parent or should that time be supervised? So the nature of asking those questions to a witness helps draw out uh, the evidence and then from that the judge can, can weigh up whether this person has demonstrated insight into their behaviour because most judges will say, okay, you can see that you've done the wrong thing 
if you have then taken steps to modify your behaviour, you might have gone <clears throat> pardon me, and done a parenting course or you might have um, sat down with a counsellor and had some real insight, oh, okay, I really see where I've done a lot of damage, then the court's going to be a lot more comforted by that than someone who says, oh, yeah, um, we argued a, a fair bit and I might have pushed it, but I never hit her. I heard that last week um, just sitting in the back of the court. all of the fa- I can tell you all of the family lawyers who were sitting in the back of the court thought, oh, this guy's about to have it come down on him. Now, the judge was fairly uh, gracious in the way that she dealt with him, but even she saw through simply from that answer that he was trying to say, well, domestic violence is only if you hit someone, and it's not. The definition is far broader than that. And even if the definition wasn't as broad as that, the real issue is um, how is that impacting on your interactions with your former partner or spouse? How is that interacting uh, on your relationship with your children? So the court's got to weigh all of those factors, and if people can't see that their behaviour is having such a detrimental effect on their their wife or their husband or their former spouse, whoever it might be, then the court's got to take steps to say, well, if you can't understand that that's wrong, I'm going to have to put some other arrangement in place to provide protection. Protection's an important thing, and in some sense, just knowing what a definition is of domestic violence is going to give you some protection because you're going to be able to recognise it. And as you're describing the situation in the courtroom, uh, I never hit her, Your Honour. It led me back to uh, some thoughts that came out last week, and I mentioned we were talking about domestic violence last week and the connections that come with this new movie, uh, Fifty Shades Darker. And, and I recall last week uh, just focusing in on, on a, a description of the plot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'll, I'll get your thoughts here as I just go through some of the description of the plot again, Steve. Uh, it was a man becoming fixated on a young female university student. He immediately becomes possessive, sulking when she so much as talks to other men. Mm-hmm and attempts to isolate her from her friends. Uh, He shows up unannounced at her place of work. He traces her mobile phone Mm -hmm. uh, to find out uh, who she's having a drink with with friends. He knows where she lives. He's controlling and emotionally manipulative. He proceeds to have sex with her despite her refusal and continued protestation. And, of course, uh, uh, in brackets in the, in the little document that I picked up that, of course, there's another word for that. It's mm. called rape. Mm. Uh, and the young woman feels abused. Now, these sorts of things continue over into longer-term relationships and into marriage. But uh, when we talk about other definitions of what constitutes domestic violence, what do you pick up out of, out of those sorts of thoughts? Okay, so let me give you some really precise definitions out of my own jurisdiction, which is Queensland. So domestic violence is the broad term. It includes physical or sexual assault. It includes a behaviour which is emotional or psychological harm. It includes financial abuse. So all of the examples that you just gave to me fall squarely within the definitions of emotional abuse, psychological abuse, financial abuse. If people are controlling how people spend money, if people are monitoring text messages on phones, using software on their phones to track where their spouse has gone, turning up at their home or their workplace unannounced, those are actually specifically given examples within the Queensland legislation. So the Queensland legislation talks about what is emotional and psychological abuse, but then it actually has seven or eight specific examples. And some of what you've read out falls squarely within the specific examples that are given because what they're causing someone to do is feel concerned for their welfare, coerced, 
their will as being overborne. So those types of behaviours are specifically defined as domestic violence. And and our, our conversation is not specifically about that movie that we're talking about today, but hearkening back to that because of the connections there to domestic violence. And, uh, and you weren't a part of that conversation last week at all, Steve, and I'm just... Uh, uh, talking about that again today because there are groups that are calling for a boycott to a movie like that. And so uh, there's a challenge there if you are thinking of seeing it, if you are thinking that this is some sort of a romantic, uh, wonderful thing for Valentine's Day. And today is Valentine's Day and uh, the release of that movie is set to coincide with Valentine's Day because it's promoted as a romantic movie. Mm. But the values that are being presented uh, will actually end up yeah, in the court. That's right. What what you're effectively doing is normalising uh, manipulative and destructive behaviour. Well, you might like to join in our conversation. We are talking about domestic violence and the courts. And our, our talk back line is open on 1-800-316-316. That's 1-800-316-316. Uh, why don't you give us a call and be a part of our conversation? Uh, if we're talking about... Um, uh, the the right process uh, to get out of a situation where you are in domestic violence, uh, resolving the crisis early. That's got to be something that we all, as we arm ourselves with a bit of information, understanding about domestic violence, it enables us to take those further steps because uh, there'd be people listening to our conversation, no doubt now, who are saying, well, uh, I've had my own experiences, got that resolved. Wasn't it wonderful? Mm. But my best friend or my daughter, uh, my relatives are going through all of these things. Getting that information and being able to give it r- the right and good advice is going to be a, a clearly a positive move forward. That's right. And sometimes that, um, that that can be done while the people are still together. And sometimes it's more appropriate that there be a period of separation and then work on the relationship. But knowledge is... A, a wonderful thing if you understand. I find most of the time clients who come in and see me, they have no real understanding of where it all fits together, where where things might go, what options are available to them. And just being able to sit down and work through, okay, what are the facts? What's happened? Uh, who are your support people? What other external evidence can we gather to verify, okay, is what you're saying a correct interpretation of what's going on? Sometimes it's very clear and sometimes it's a little bit nebulous. But just being able to put some boundaries around that and say, okay, well, these are the various options, gives people a lot more confidence because they can say, well, actually, I don't have to put up with that behaviour anymore or it's completely inappropriate or, no, what she's accusing you of is not domestic violence. That's something different. Or what he's accusing you of uh, is not domestic violence, but it might not be a sign of a healthy relationship. So why not think about sitting down with a counsellor and working through these issues, improving the communication? Let's take a call from Phil in Melbourne. Hello, Phil. Welcome along to 2020. Thank you very much. Phil, what are your thoughts, or do you have a question for our family lawyer? Well, purely and simply is that everything that we hear, in, whether it be um, domestic violence or, or sexual abuse, is always pointed at the man. Yet, there is a very, very big percentage of both of those things uh, being uh, perpetrated by women against either younger men or, or their husbands or whatever, but it's never heard of. Phil, what you're talking about is is very true. And Look, when I started out as a family lawyer, um, 
many years ago now, I was under the impression that it was predominantly um, directed from men towards women. But the reality that I've experienced in my professional career is that it goes both ways all the time. But my experience is that men tend to underreport it compared to women. Um, That's and, right. Mm. That, and that coincides. Like uh, friends of mine uh, years ago used to be um, social workers in uh, Tirana uh, boys' home. Mm-hmm. Boys' prison, whatever, you know, it was a pretty violent place. And their experience was that the uh, overwhelming uh, number of uh, young men had been uh, sexually abused by their mother. Yet, you know, like you would think, uh, listening to uh, news or whatever, is that uh, that would never occur. Mm. It's always a, a man's the perpetrator, but the uh, the people within the know uh, um, know that that's not the case, and in your own words, you have verified it. Yeah, and Why aren't we hearing uh, the other side of the coin. Well, I, I think that there needs to be an education process on all parts because what we're really talking about is people wanting control and domineering over somebody else. That happens regardless of whether you're in a um, in a married relationship or in an unmarried relationship, I see it between um, homosexual and heterosexual couples. I see it between parents and their children. There's nothing worse than having parents who are in their 70s, for example, having their, their cars smashed in or their doors smashed in by their children. That's domestic violence as well. Now, typically in that kind of a situation, that's reported even less than uh, violence between separating couples because families tend to be quite personal and want to keep it within the family and they don't want it being shared around. There might be embarrassment there or they might want to just try and deal with it privately, but it's it's very prevalent. It's, it's a scourge and it's even between siblings um, where the behaviour of one sibling just completely uh, overbears the other. Or And the, the other thing too is that Domestic violence, it might not seem, it might seem a little strange to say this, but I've acted for people who were consistently pestered by their sibling. Now you think, okay, I've got two brothers, they're pretty good, I get on with them very well. There was a time in our teenage years where we tended to get on each other's nerves a little bit, but you know, as you get older, you, you tend to work through those issues. But sometimes you might have a sibling who just consistently harasses, pesters, they might not um, share some of your values, and so they become quite. Um, they berate you or belittle you. You then say, "Oh, can you can we cut this out? Can you stop calling me at all times of the day and night?" And they continue to call. And I've acted in matters where people have just consistently been bombarded by telephone calls all day and all night by their siblings. Now that's actually domestic violence. It's it falls within the definitions of intimidation and harassment because it's that perpetual nature. So a threat can be intimidating with a one off. Harassment can be ongoing, and that, um, like you said, Phil, that can be something that's not restricted to gender. Phil from Melbourne, thank you so much for your call today. one 316 Let's take a call from Craig in Mackay in Queensland. Hello, Craig. Welcome along. Yeah, how you going there, mate? Very well, Craig. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, well, I've got, I've got a situation where we've got two older daughters, and um, so they're 17 and 15 and 16 now. Well, she just turned 16, but they were basically ganging up on their mother. And whenever I wasn't home, they would threaten her and like you know spit in her face and pull her hair and all this sort of stuff. And then, and that, but they wouldn't do it in front of anybody else. So all our friends and rallies and that sort of thing, they're they're wonderful people. But 
they're behaving like this behind everybody's backs all the time. Mm. And like you said before, the, I've had the window smashed out of my car. You know, these, one of these girls just in a rage because they didn't get their own way, just smashed it. You know, things like taking their iPads off them or, you know, something like that. They would just go into a rage and smash things. And, but basically they were bullying their mother. Mm. And this, this lawyer that you've got there now, he's saying, well, people try to keep it within the family, but really you've got nowhere to go. That that's true. Um, those are very difficult situations, particularly when you're talking about uh, people who are teenagers, you know, older teenagers who might not necessarily be legal persons in the sense of being a separate legal person who can be prosecuted in certain circumstances, but physically big enough to do a lot of damage. I'm not talking about young children. I'm t- I'm talking about teenage or even adult children. And look, I can uh, um, empathise with your struggle there. Um, Craig, because it is a very difficult situation and there are limited resources that are available uh, for people in in a situation like that. There are a lot of domestic violence um, resources that are available, but they do tend to be more directed uh, towards people coming out of romantic relationships or or, um, between partners rather than between um, children and parents. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Stephen Potts is our guest. He is an accredited specialist in family law. He's also managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. Steve, uh, just only a few minutes left in our conversation. If someone listening to our conversation today knows that they are either in themselves uh, a circumstance where they're uh, experiencing family violence, domestic violence, or you know someone close to you, uh, is this a time to just sort of uh, let that just go by and not pay attention? Is this a time to think deeply about whether it's it's time to take action? How do you describe uh, the way that people should move forward if they recognise that they're right in the middle of this right now, what yeah. we're talking about? Sure. If it's an emergency, obviously contact the police immediately because you might need to get out of that situation. If it's not yet an emergency, having some more information is helpful. So speaking with a counsellor, speaking with a family lawyer, even speaking with a pastor. If you're going to come and see a family lawyer, I'd suggest you try and bring someone with you, a trusted friend who you can bring with you because we talked a little bit before you were giving some examples about monitoring the phones and things like that. If you go with a friend to see a family lawyer, for it sounds awful to say this, but you can at least say, oh, what did you do today? Oh, I caught up with my friend so-and-so. You're not being, you're probably being a little dishonest perhaps, but um, legitimately you're with a friend. That friend can then sit with you, hear the same advice without the emotional attachment to it and be able to help you process at a later date. The friend can also sometimes help to do some of the research and gather some of that evidence that you might not be able to gather while you're in that situation. Because if someone is looking at your phone, looking at the websites that you've visited, uh, looking at how you've spent your money, then that can really limit your abilities to seek some external help. So having a friend who you trust um, is often a good way of having some research done or some help provided by a friend. And I think there's a real place for people in the church to be able to provide that level of assistance. Um, I don't know whether we've talked about it in the past, Neil, on our previous chats, but one of the things that strikes me most as a family lawyer who is acting for people either within the church or who have friends within the church is that the church is an amazing resource for caring for people. I act for a lot of people who might have moved into state or they don't have family members left anymore and their relationship breaks down and their support network is very, very small. 
Sometimes we underrate the value of belonging in our local church because there is, as you say, such an incredible support network. Mm. Whether it's, and mostly we think of the support network starting with the pastor, but mm. it's those small groups that you belong with. It's uh, the people that you befriend and, you know, you become a bestie with someone mm. in your local church. You've got a sounding board and not only have you got uh, some good advice, but you've got oftentimes Christian advice, biblical advice, advice that has has grown and is uh, is such value that it's it's uh, done the test of time over thousands of years. Absolutely. There's the advice and there's also the practical assistance. Think of it, forget for a moment that we're talking about domestic violence and let's talk about a family whose house might have just burnt down. How quick is the church to say, oh, I've got a spare fridge, oh, I've got a couch, oh, you can use our car for this week. People who are fleeing from a domestic violence situation, sometimes all they flee with is themselves and their children. Maybe they might have time to pack a suitcase. That it might be that volatile. Church um, members have this wonderful opportunity to provide that real practical assistance. It might be a spare room. It might be some financial support, but it might be a practical. You have this car. It's got a tank full of fuel. Have it for the week while you sort things out. Or I'll take you in to see the family lawyer. Or I'll take you into the court while we go down to our local courthouse and get the forms to fill out the application for a protection order. So um, lots of friends are able to do that. But my experience over you know all the years that I've been a family lawyer is the church has this unique ability to really hit a lot of people. It hits a prayer chain and all of a sudden there's youths turning up with washing machines and who hasn't got a spare fridge somewhere at the back of their house or um, an old table and chairs that might be available. So there's this wonderful resource that's able to provide that person with some protection and a, a little bit of space. Now, that might mean that they can then deal with the issues and restore the relationship, but if they can't restore the relationship, they've got a, a basis on which they can survive because lots of people return to violent relationships because they don't have any other option. And always so good to know that in probably most situations, the pastor or the minister in your local church has dealt with circumstances similar to yours in the past and has uh, at his fingertips uh, his own referrals, whether it's uh, a counsellor or whether it might be a family lawyer Mm. in your town or in your city uh, where you can actually get further help if the pastor is not uh, able to give that that help that it's required. So uh, take that opportunity. If you are going through circumstances right now, uh, have a chat to your pastor and uh, take some great advice from our special guest today, Steve Potts, an accredited specialist in family law. Now, there is a website that I will give you in case you do want to make contact with Steve Potts today. Uh, it's ntlawyers.com.au. That stands for Newman and Turner Lawyers. Uh, they're based in Brisbane. That's ntlawyers.com.au. Steve, always so so good getting your advice, and no doubt we'll do this uh, some more as the year progresses. But thanks so much for taking time to share your heart and your expertise with us today here on 2020. Great to be here. Thanks, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.